So a couple of weeks ago, we started a series of messages about what the church is and who the church is for and what the church does. As we talked about it over the last few weeks, we've discovered that the church is not a place. It's not a building. It's not even just necessarily a group of people. It is people called out of society for the specific purpose of telling others the good news of Jesus Christ. And last week we talked about that the church is a place for or a group of people seeking after people who are genuinely lost without Christ. According to Scripture, the people that are lost without Christ are anyone who does not have a personal relationship with Him. And that we don't have to ask people to clean up before they come. And we don't have to have all these standards about what they can and can't do or should or should not be. That it is an open invitation for people to come to Christ. But can I tell you something real quickly? The church is not doing well in America. I don't know whether you know that or not, but the church is not doing well in America. In fact, I have some statistics for you. These are going to be uh, hopefully eye-opening and in some ways maybe um, surprising to some of you. Some of you may know this already, but uh, John, if you can go ahead and start putting those on the screen. 6,000 churches close their doors every year. 3,500 Americans leave the church every day. Only one pastor in ten retires while still in ministry. That means nine out of ten leave for some reason before that. There are more. Less than 20% of Americans attend church regularly. Can I just say that this myth that we live in a predominantly Christian nation is... If it once was true, it is not anymore. Only 15% of churches in the U.S. are growing numerically. There's more. Only 2% of those growing churches, so 2% of 15%, are effectively winning converts to Christ. Only 9% of evangelicals, that's people like us, tithe to their churches. Here's the last two. 800 new church plants survive each year. But to keep up with population growth, 10,000 new churches are needed each year. Those are sobering statistics. And the question as churches that we have to ask is, why is that happening? What's going on? I mean, we have the greatest message that has ever been delivered in the history of the world. We have a generation of people that is searching for hope and desiring something more, more than we have had in decades. We have a generation that is more lost than it has been in the history of America. And the church is flailing. The church is trying to do something, but nothing is happening. Part of the reason that I think that that's going on, is not just that we've forgotten what the church is or who the church is for, but we've forgotten what the church is supposed to do. I don't mean that we don't have stuff going on. I just mean that we don't realize what we're supposed to do, what that means. When I came five and a half years ago, 
I came with a purpose statement that's printed on the front of our bulletins every week. And um, I think that's, I've got it up here somewhere on the screen. I just want us to remind it. And it is that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That the whole reason that this church exists is to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now, there are lots of things that are happening in the church, but the reason we exist is to glorify God, to lead people, to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And part of the reason I believe in that statement is because it exemplifies what the church is supposed to be doing. And first of all, we exist to glorify God. Number one. If we do nothing else in church, we exist to glorify God, to worship Him, to celebrate Him, to praise His name, to give honor and glory and majesty and strength unto the only name that is worth glory and honor and majesty and strength. That is the reason we exist, to glorify God, to worship him. I, I, I refrained from using worship in that statement for the simple reason that when people say the word worship these days, they don't really mean worship. They mean in their mind what they've come to believe that hour on Sunday morning is. And sometimes that is worship, but many times it's just a group of people getting together. And so the question becomes, well, what does worship look like? What is worship? What, what do we do in worship? What is it supposed to be? And listen, I, I know, and um, we just talked about it in the skit, that, that worship is more than what we do here on Sunday mornings. And I understand that. I've preached on that. I believe that. I believe in Romans that talks about that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, our everyday walking around life, that everything we do can be worshipful acts to the Father. But the truth is, there is also something about the fact that in Scripture, when it talks about worship, primarily it mentions worship as that time when a group of people get together and acknowledge to God that He is great and awesome and glorious and we are not and we couldn't make it without Him and we give praise and honor and glory due to His name because He alone is worthy. And that's what worship is. That's what I want to talk about today. What does it mean when we get together? What does worship look like? What is it supposed to be about? If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. We're going to put some, um, not right now, but in a moment we're going to put some scripture up on the screen, but I want you to see the whole background of the story here. Because Jesus does give some extended teaching on the concept of worship. Many of you know this story already. And, you know, I want to kind of refresh your memory. And I want to look at a passage of Scripture that it probably doesn't surprise any of you that we're going to look at. But I just want us to remind ourselves of what we're talking about here. And in John chapter 4, we have this um, amazing conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. This conversation between Jesus and one of the few people that anybody would have expected him to talk to. Now, here's the thing that's amazing about this part of the book of John. Y'all know what John chapter 3 is, right? You know the story. What's the story of John chapter 3? Nicodemus, right? Jesus and Nicodemus, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but... Everlasting life, right? That's John chapter 3. And here's the thing that I love about Jesus is Jesus would talk to absolutely anybody. Who was Nicodemus? 
was a Pharisee, right? He was ruling council, big wig, politically important. The next story after that talks about Jesus and John the Baptist and some things that are going on. Jesus associated with John the Baptist. Who was he? Well, to us, he's this revered man, right? Who was he to the people around him? That guy that should be in the loony bin. Right? What do you wear? Animal skins. What do you eat? Grasshoppers. Well, doesn't that sound good? I don't want to hear a single one of you. Oh, I've had some chocolate-covered grasshoppers and they're good. I don't want to hear that, alright? If that was your diet, we would think you were nuts. Right, that's right. So Jesus has associated himself with this political leader, Nicodemus. He's associated himself with this outcast out in the wilderness saying, repent, repent. And his name is John the Baptist. And then we get to chapter 4 and Jesus associates himself with someone that is ethnically different than him and is a woman. And in that day and time, you did not do that. You know the story, right? Is Apostles and him are traveling through, and Jesus says, we must go through Samaria. And the disciples are like, whoo, I don't know about Jesus. We don't go through Samaria. We'd rather go in Gentile lands than to go through Samaria. Jesus says, no, we've got to go. And they go, and they get there. It's the middle of the day, and Jesus sends his disciples in to get some food. And Jesus basically is saying, I'm going to stay here. Y'all go get some food. When you get the food, bring it back. I'll be here at the well. And he's at the well, and a woman comes to draw water. And she goes there, and he says, hey, could you just, could you just get me some water? And she says, why are you, a Jewish man, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for water? Jesus says, if you knew who you were giving water to, you would ask me for living water. And they get this whole, you know the dialogue, right? Well, where's this water? I want it. If I never thirst again, where is it? Well, it's not. And they get in that discussion. And then he says, before we do that, go get your husband and come back and we'll talk about it. She says, what? I don't have one. Jesus looks at her and says, oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) I knew that. You've had five. And the guy you're living with is not your husband. But, I mean... You, I guess you go get him. And then she makes an interesting statement. This is where we want to pick up. She says in verse 19, Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. And here's why that's interesting. The Samaritans and the Jews had lots of differences, but their main difference is on what part of the Bible they believed. The Jews believe the entire Old Testament like we do. The Samaritans believe the first five books of the Old Testament. And their teaching was that Moses was the last prophet until the end prophet would come. That Moses was a prophet and there are no prophets until the prophet comes. So here's what's interesting about what this lady says. That is a huge statement. It's not like, oh, you're like one of the prophets out there. She's saying... You may be the one. We miss that sometimes when we read this. When he's like, like, because we think she's just saying, oh, you can read my mind, you can read my life. But what she's saying is, you may be the one. Now, sometimes, and even I've preached this, and we don't really know this, it's a little speculation. We think that she's trying to get him off the track of her personal sin, and so she brings up a question about worship, because we all know that when you really don't want to deal with your own personal stuff, you bring up a controversial subject and say, well, what about this? And then you can... Get them off of it, right? I'm not so sure that's what's happening. I'm not so sure that she's not, as I've studied this week, just asking a genuine question. And she says, let me ask you a question. Verse 20 says this. Our fathers 
Worship on this mountain. Yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. That's not really a question, is it? No, it's just kind of a statement. But her point is this. What's the right way to worship? L- listen, I, we believe those first five books of the Bible, and the first five books of the Bible, the place that Moses set up to worship is right here. But for some reason, the Jews think that you're supposed to move it down to Jerusalem. Now, the Jews believe that David established a temple in Jerusalem. That's God's place. And so they said, that's where we worship. And so this was a major dividing controversy for these two groups of people. And she just wants clarification on it. And Jesus does exactly what Jesus usually does. He answers the question without answering the question and takes it further than she ever intended. And Jesus says to her, Believe me, woman. That that doesn't mean like believe in me. This isn't a gospel invitation at this moment. He's just saying, this is the truth. An hour is coming. Now just a little note. Whenever he says an hour is coming in the book of John, what that means is that um, there is coming a time or the now is at hand. The, The idea is the hour in the book of John is always his death, burial, and resurrection. So he says, it's getting real close. When you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't really sound like an answer. But coming from a Jewish man saying that Jerusalem wouldn't have any impact was a major statement. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. They're just a reference to himself. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus gives the most detailed account of what He means by worship in this little passage where He says that There's coming a time when it won't matter where you are, when it won't matter what your tradition is, when it won't matter what your cultural identity is. It won't matter what you've done in the past. It won't matter what place you are at. It won't matter what altar is before you. It won't matter what instruments you have. Because worship is about to be turned on its head. When I die, when I rise from the dead, everything about worship that you have known previous to this moment will completely change because worship will move from an outward expression to an outward expression that comes from inside. It will move from something that you're just giving ritualistic credence to to something that is a major impact on your own life. He was, in essence, tearing down Everything this woman had ever known or expected or thought about worship. But in doing so, he was doing the same thing to the Jewish idea of worship as well. That's all well and good for them. What does that mean for us? Well, I want to do this in two ways. I want to talk about what worship is not. And then I want to talk about worship is. All right? Okay, are you here? Okay, you're just kind of looking at me. Are you here? All right. So we're going to do what worship is not. Then we're going to do what worship is is all right and if you got some steel-toed boots you might put them on because i might be stepping on some toes here in a minute all right here's what according to jesus worship is not first of all according to jesus worship is not tied to any particular place i mean that's the direct thing he says right 
So that means that there is no place that worship has to occur. You realize that that is different than almost every major religion that has ever existed, right? Where's the Jewish holy place? Jerusalem, right? Where's the Muslim holy place? Mecca, right? They they have several sites, but Mecca is the one. What about um, Buddhism, Hinduism? They have their rivers and their specific places that people go. Jesus says, worship's not tied to any particular place. Now, what that means is that we aren't bound to think of worship only in a certain location or building or setting. It means that you can worship in places that aren't normally associated with worship. You can worship in a setting that is different. One of the things that happened in um, American life is that churches all started looking a particular way. Not our church. Right? Now, I'm glad I'm part of a unique looking outside structure. But most churches in America have a certain look. Uh, I, I thought it was funny that, um, you know, we, we're very active in Brazil. been down there a lot. And Gary Taylor, who has led that for us, um, has been doing that since 1988. And, and he talked about when they first went to Brazil, they went down there to build churches. And the first churches they built were white on the outside with a steeple. And some of the Brazilian pastors came up to him and said, Our people have no clue what that is. Because that doesn't look like anything down here. And none of our churches look like that. Gary realized that he had associated what a church is by the way it looked. And so he looks and says, Listen, Church is not, worship is not tied to any particular place. But it goes further than that for her. Because what he also says is worship is not tied to any particular tradition. Which tradition is better, ours or theirs? Instruments or no instruments? Standing and singing or being expressive? If you can only worship in the way you have traditionally worshipped, then you need to check whether or not you are truly worshipping. If it takes a certain tradition to get you to worship or to feel comfortable or to like what's going on, then you need to check whether what you're doing is worship or you're propagating a tradition. Jesus says... The time is coming and is already here. And we're well past that. When what you traditionally have done will not matter anymore. Tradition's not bad until it becomes traditionalism. Or it becomes the only way to do something. If you've ever said the phrase, the only way I can worship is, then I question whether or not you are worshiping the immense, powerful God that we serve. Because worship isn't based on any tradition, it's based on Him. Similar to that, worship is not tied to any particular style. There's not, Scripture does not endorse a particular worship style. Now, we're going to talk in a few minutes about what Scripture does say about worship. 
But it doesn't endorse any particular worship style. So here's what I'll say about that. If you've ever fought for a particular worship style and saying that another style cannot be worship, then you are speaking falsehood. If it is glorifying to God and His name, then you can't question whether or not it's a style difference just because you don't like it. Now, listen, I understand that we all have differences in the styles we like of whatever. We look out here today and we have different style preferences in clothing. Right? You want me to make some examples? Do we? Right? Yeah. No, Bill, yours is not. We have different preferences in style of clothing. We have different preferences in style of car. We have different preferences in the style of what we watch on TV or what we listen to on the radio. I understand that. And the problem is not saying, I prefer one style to another. The problem comes when you say, and that can't be worship. And even saying that on occasion, I can't step out of my preferred style and understand God in a new way because of a different style. You got those steel-toed boots on? Here's another thing worship is not. Worship is not emotion without intellect. Worship is not ecstatic experience without it grounded in the truth that God has revealed. Can I tell you that, that first and foremost, worship must be around the right things, or more particularly, about the right person. And to be about the right person, we have to have a correct concept of who God is. We have to have a right understanding of what He is and what He does and who He wants us to be. There, there has to be an understanding. It has to be based in Scripture. It has to be an understanding of God as He has revealed us Himself to us. As the one who created the earth. And when we messed it up, began a centuries-long process of reconciling us unto Himself. He is the mighty and powerful God. We, uh, based on, uh, you know, my daughter, um, Maddie, is the, going to be the entertainer in our group. Alright? And, and preschool choir sang a few weeks ago, and, and um, there, there's a song they sing called, God is Strong and Powerful, He Can Do Anything. Well, she sings that, God is Strong and Powerful, We Can Do Anything. Alright? And there are some Christians that live that out. Now, Maddie's just turned three. It's, I'm not worried about her theology at this moment, all right? But there are a lot of Christians that act that way. God is strong and powerful. We can do anything. No, we can't. He can. He is the one that is awesome and powerful and strong and mighty. And He alone is worthy. And so, if we're doing emotional stuff without any bearing whatsoever connected to the person of Jesus Christ that worship is about, it is not worship. Secondly, though, or fifthly, if you're counting, worship is not intellect without emotion. I grew up in a church that was all about shoulder-up worship. You didn't move anything below the shoulders. Now, I'm not surprised. I'm a little surprised in my church growing up. They didn't have straps for your feet 
And our arms. I mean, when I say you didn't move anything, I mean, your arms stayed here or here. And it was very intellectual based. We sang hymns. And if you, some services, if you, some of our hymns are deep theologically, right? I love the deep theological hymns. But there are some services that we sang so many deep theological hymns in a row, you didn't get any of it because you're just flying past. You can't stop and think about it. I had sermons growing up. I love the pastor I grew up under. We are a great relationship. I'm praying for him because it's in a place where um, his health is failing in a major way. He was my pastor from the time I was five years old until I went to seminary. I love him. But we had sermons on what was not appropriate in worship. And basically it was anything besides singing and amening because he wanted to know we were listening. And an occasional amen is okay. Apparently not. All right. Dang, thank you, Bill. The simple truth is this. If you have truly been impacted by the fact that Jesus Christ has rescued you from hell, that is not something you can celebrate without emotion. You just cannot at all There are some of you that will yell and scream at a television set for people that aren't even real. Will cry your eyes out over someone dying on TV that is playing a character. And yet you talk about the God of the universe saving your soul and it is as dry as can be. That cannot happen. So what is worship? Four things. It only takes me 45 minutes to wrap this up. So, Four things. First of all, worship is vertical. It is directed to God. Now, I don't mean that we can't sing songs sometimes about what is good, what is not good with each other. And we can't have conversations about what God is. And even in worship, I mean, think about some of the songs we sing. We are talking to each other, not to God. You realize that, right? Some of the worship songs we sing... We're talking about God to one another, not to God directly. But there has to be elements in your worship that are directly talking to God. Here's part of the reason. If someone walks into a room and you've been talking about them, what do you do? Some of you stop talking about me in Sunday school classes and some of you keep going. But the idea is generally you stop talking about them and you start talking... To them, right? Well, to talk about God and never talk to God does not acknowledge that God is with us. And we may be stating something that is true, but we desire not to be. You want to know part of the reason I think the church is struggling so much in America is because we are no longer actively inviting God into our presence. We no longer want Him to be a part of what we're doing. We think we've got it figured out and we like talking to each other and we like being around each other, but to ask God to actually show up an event that's supposed to be in his name and in his honor is something we don't think about and i don't want to be a part of a church that doesn't actively engage in asking god to descend on this place and to change us and to fill this place i don't want to be a church that doesn't go vertical with our worship worship is vertical here's the second thing Worship is simple. It's simple in this. It is people that have been rescued by God expressing to God their appreciation 
and the glory of who he is. And intimacy demands simplicity. Those of you that have been married for a little while, have you ever told your wife or your husband that you loved them? I hope the answer is yes. You can. Does your wife or your husband ever get tired of you saying those three words? No. Now, how simple is that? What wife has ever said to her husband, I just wish you'd quit saying that? That's all you ever say over and over again. Right? Because intimacy defines simplicity. Listen, I've been married to Susan for almost 15 years. I love my wife. I love her dearly, but she does not want me to give her a doctoral dissertation on the reasons that I love her. She is satisfied with, I love you. Now, there are times when we express it differently, but she doesn't want an intellectual discussion of our love. And when it comes to the Lord, He likes simple. How do we know He likes simple? What are the angels always saying? In the, in the throne room, when we see them around Jesus, we see them around God, what are they saying? It's the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Isaiah, what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy. In Revelation, what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy. Listen, if God can put up with simple worship, then we ought to give it to Him. Not overthink it. And that goes to the next point, which is this, that worship is emotive. You know why worship needs to be simple? This is just a kind of a thing. Because psychologically, we latch on to simple things and it affects us emotionally different. You know, one of the biggest complaints about the contemporary worship thing is that there's too much repetition. And um, there are songs that repeat a lot. I'm surprised I didn't get about 20 amens right there. And I can tell you, I can tell you the songs that repeat the most. You want to know what they are? So you can put these on your list not to sing ever again and say church doesn't sing it. Well, there's one song that has 175 references to the same thing. It's called Psalm 119. And it's to the Word of God. There's one song that repeats the same phrase 26 times in one song. That's Psalm 136. His love endures forever. Repetition is the thing in our minds that allows emotion to enter in. Even our greatest hymns have repetition, right? We don't call it repetition, we call it what? A chorus, right? I I mentioned this earlier, but if you can sing about the God of the universe rescuing your soul and it doesn't get emotional for you, there's something wrong. Last thing, I promise we'll be done. Worship is physical. In Scripture, when it says that we are to worship the Lord, it says that we are to love the Lord. Another word for worship in many ways is love. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Scripture uses physical descriptions of what we do in worship all the time. It says that we are to use our voice. I love the Lord because He hears my voice. David, please, for God's hearing might simply be descriptive, but volume matters in worship. If you can sit and worship when how great thou art is being sung and your lips remain closed or you do not express them loudly, the truths of that song, then I question the heart you have for the Lord. I don't care if you can't sing. I can't either. I have people that will testify to that. Volume matters in worship. What does the psalmist say? Speak quietly before the Lord. 
Is that what he says? Shout. Cry. Loud. There are intimate symbols. I don't want, you know, Bill played uh, Glorify Your Name in All the Earth. That's not a song for everybody to be shouting on, necessarily. That's an intimate moment of worship. But how great thou art. Shout it. Scripture says, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. Scripture talks about our eyes. And it's not just closing your eyes. But David frequently says, lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the one you're talking to. Now, we realize God doesn't exist right there. But when we look, we acknowledge that He is greater and higher than we are. And we can look to Him in worship. Your head. Worship is never supposed to be done with a downward glance or a face that says you detest being here. You are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Your hands. Do you know what's interesting is that the Bible never tells us to do what most of us do with our hands in worship. Put them in our laps or cross them over. What does the Bible tell us to do with our hands? Raise them, clap them, lift them. Our legs. Scripture talks about, in fact, the very word for worship means to bow before, to prostrate yourself, to get on the ground before Lord. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And even our feet. David danced before the Lord in worship. Now let me just be real honest with you. That is something that I am still asking the Lord to give me competence in. I'm a Baptist guy from West Tennessee. But that doesn't excuse me from biblical direction. In summary, worship is spirit and truth. It affects every part of our body. My question to you is, is that what you experience? Is that what you expect? How did you prepare for worship this morning? I don't mean how did you get your clothes on and what time did you get up? How did you get here? How did you prepare for worship this morning? Scripture talks about songs of ascent that lead us into the house of the Lord. We realize this isn't a place that is the house of the Lord physically, that this is a place that we have set aside to worship. Now my question is, what do you expect? And will you join me in asking the Lord to descend on this place when we gather together? Let's pray together.